0: Namav Namo Vaitasabhagavaturātua samā sambhutāsa Namav Namo Vaitasabhagavaturātua samā sambhutāsa Namav Namo Bhagavato samā sambhutāsa Pudang Sangāng namasami So this, this evening, in the chanting that we did, um, we started with some recollections of the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, and then uh, chanted the, the, the Mangala Sutta. The Mangala Sutta is, is the, one of the most popular suttas in the Buddhist uh, pantheon for lay community, because it, it's, um, it's an instruction on how to live in a way which is skillful. And if you look at it, um, have a sense, you know, it starts out with with um, a deva appears to the Buddha and says, you know, devas like happiness and people like happiness. You know, what brings happiness? And then he um, delineates a, a course, a gradual course of contemplations or reflections or skillful actions that uh, can focus our attention on what is bringing happiness. And so the first one is not to hang out with fools. So it's not starting with a, a, a philosophical um, abstract. It's talking about pretty uh, down-to-earth kind of stuff. You know, don't hang out with fools and don't hang out in a place that's not helpful. You know, live in a place that's skillful. And then it's a it's a gradual uh, exposition of different ways that one can bring uh, skill into one's life by contemplating and engaging in actions and reflections and activities that are helpful. And because it's talking about our life, then it's not just about the kind of abstract things or the that one is um, aspiring to uh, separate, but it's very much you know the way we, we're living, you know how we spend our time, what we do, how we choose to engage. And towards the end of the list is uh, the contemplation of the four noble truths and the realization of them. So, as skillful as we can be in our life, um, it isn't liberating until we have a profound understanding of uh, that, where we are getting stuck, and a different relationship with how to be in with those fundamental things. So. The Four Noble Truths, as we've talked about before, is the, is the kind of universality that there is suffering. The, the cause of suffering being related to the desire for it to be different. The cessation of suffering and the path that leads to the cessation of suffering. And as a practice, there's a whole way of practicing just with the Four Noble Truths, where one's attention is constantly working with what's arising, whether there's suffering present and being able to focus on wanting it to be there or wanting it to be different. And then in that space of observing the wanting and the not wanting, one can see it cease, one can see it end. And then it brings us to the fourth of the Noble Truths, which is the path that leads to the end of suffering. And that's classically described as the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path is right view, right intention, right effort, right action, right livelihood, right speech, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And again, these are hubs of a wheel, so it's not a linear progression. But these are different aspects that ripen and support each other to bring about the the attitudes and the way of looking at things that supports being able to contemplate suffering, the cause and the end of suffering. So we have um, classically right view is uh, described as the, in two different levels, there's the, the, the mundane right view and the super mundane right view. And again, mundane right view is very much what most of that list was about. You know, the, the good things that come when we live in a skillful place, when we do uh, skillful things, when we live well, when we live with integrity, when we live with generosity. Um, you know, mundane right view is is about understanding the effects of karma, that there is cause and effect, and that the things that we do have a result, and that it's useful to do things which are skillful. But as I was saying before, even if we have mundane right view, it's not liberating. And so we can live a very skillful life, be utterly committed to things which are entirely wholesome, and not be free. Because unless there's a clear understanding of that which gets us stuck, and a radical shift in our relationship with it, then the same patterns will repeat. So the supermundane right view has to do with an understanding again of the Four Noble Truths. Uh, that which shows where the source of the problem actually lies. And the identification with what's arising as being central to the problem. When we begin to meditate, that gives us the fortitude to be able to unravel some of these loops and see things more clearly. Because oftentimes what's happening is that these patterns are going on and we don't catch them. So the same things are repeating again and again and again, but we're not actually have the capacity to unravel the threads as to what's causing this this nexus or this um, entangling, which the result is suffering. So there can be an initial thought or initial impulse, then it goes through this big black box, and then the result is suffering. And so the the point of meditation is to begin to start untangling the black box, to begin to see the threads and how they're woven together, and to see the impulses of thoughts and movements of attention as to how one impulse of thought or one sense contact then generates this nexus which results in identification and clinging and what falls is suffering. So when we start with right view, when we start with a clear understanding of the Four Noble Truths and we have a clear understanding of the importance of laying the foundations for life to be one of skill and one of integrity, then that gives us the capacity to start unraveling the tangle. But if we have only right view, and we don't have right intention, and we don't have right effort, we don't have right action, we don't have right livelihood, we don't have right speech, we don't have right mindfulness, we don't have right concentration, we don't have much. (laughs) So we need to begin to start looking at, well, what are the other things that are necessary? So with right... View the next thing is right intention, and right intention has three aspects to it. And the first aspect is the intention towards renunciation, the intention towards uh, goodwill, and the intention towards non-harm. So you know, in in the re- in, in the intention towards renunciation, you know, one of the biggest things to renounce is the I am. You know, that this belongs to me, this is who I am, and this is what I'm made out of. And that's not precept dependent, you know. That's not only for monastics or people who've gone forth. That's anybody who's a very sincere practitioner. Anytime there's an arising of a thought or a feeling or sensation or a body impulse or a mind movement or a memory, the tendency is to identify this is what I am. And that movement away from identification is the most profound expression of renunciation that any one can muster. Shaving your head is nothing. (laughs) Not having dinner at night is nothing. And even giving up cuddles is nothing in comparison to giving up the sense of I am, you know. And the habitual identification, grasping with it. Along with the renunciation of I am, there's also, especially in this culture, this incredible overemphasis that if we have what we want, then that's where our happiness lies. And it's a really a, a willingness to begin to look and see, well, actually, that ain't the truth. You know, it ain't the way it is. You know, We can have everything we want, still be miserable as sin. And so, you know, what's needed is to begin to have a more wholesome relationship with the whole world of sense objects, of sensuality, of material objects, of acquisition, of things as well as power and status, and to put that into a right relationship so that we're not constantly striving after stuff, which isn't in the end going to be the thing that's going to satisfy us. Renunciation is one aspect of right intention. The next aspect is goodwill. And so, you know, again, for many of us, there, there's a whole practice on being able to bring a feeling of metta into our lives, where kindness and friendliness and warmth to ourself, for ourself, is something that we take on board as a wholesome, important aspect of what we do. And so there's this kind of, you know, abyss of self um, despair or self-hatred or lack of self-respect which is endemic in our society and you know we can gloss over that, put a nice bright smile on our face be incredibly competent at everything that we do and yet when we sit with ourselves it's present, it's present in the harshness or the judgment or the um, inability to just hold attention with kindness towards ourselves And it's not okay just to gloss over that and just to go on with higher and more inspiring practices. We have to bring kindness and uh, a goodwill, a sense of friendliness to ourselves as a kind of bottom line basis. And then from having a sense of that in ourselves, then we're in a position to be able to share that and spread that outward. And then the intention towards non-harm, which is the third of the right intentions, is actually, as far as I'm concerned, the first. Because when you have intention to non-harm, it sets the stage for everything else to follow. And that, you know, again, is not a small practice just to begin to bear witness to the uh, repeated judgment, self-condemnation, the slander, the harshness, the, you know, the depreciative kind of things that go on and just say, stop. 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 This is not serving anybody. I'm not going to believe this or follow this or go along with this. Stop. But what happens is, is this stuff loops, and it's so kind of wallpaper-ish. It's so much part of the scenario, we don't even see it. So, you know, one of the things that meditation does is it illuminates the thought patterns that we have into our horror. We realize that kind of the, some of the stuff that are actually, you know, is common, everyday, normal background noise you know i'm useless i can't do it you know i'm hopeless whatever it is whatever the stories that are going on and this stuff has got to be seen for what it is and not believed and not followed and not added any extra energy to it needs to end you know, so as we begin to bring both a sense of renunciation and goodwill and then this harmlessness to ourselves, then that creates a foundation for being able to share that with others. We cannot give something we do not have. And so if we don't know it, we can't share it. You know, it's just lip service. It's really Superficial. Right effort is classically the four right efforts, and this is the right effort to develop wholesome states which have not arisen, to sustain wholesome states which have arisen, to diminish unwholesome states that have arisen, and to prevent unwholesome states that, have ar- that, ha- that haven't arisen from arising in the future. And a lot of this has to do with understanding you know, what stirs us up, and when there is something wholesome that's happening, to learn how to develop it and spread it, sustain it, and, you know, to rejoice in it. So, you know, we don't need to watch everything as just a, an object of mind, watch it arise and cease and make nothing out of it. There's times when we can say, well, look, you know, it's actually, this is wholesome. It's worth taking note and paying attention and doing what we can to spread it. You know, so something like, you know, the meditation class last Thursday, you know, just talking about the whole possibility of living in alignment, where one's posture is in alignment with gravity, which allows one to surrender into gravity and allow relaxation. And then when one begins to feel the muscles starting to... Surrender into the force of gravity and that warmth and ease that can happen with that. That's a wholesome thing that we need to learn to identify and to spread so that we can learn to cultivate relaxation as a kind of basis rather than as a momentary and transitory thing that we're moving into and out of between one extreme and another extreme. You know, it actually begins to be something that we register we cultivate, we know and we can feel you know, greater and lesser degrees of relaxation in contrast to greater and lesser degrees of tension with the unwholesome things that arise there's a whole skill set of you know, how to look at them work with them and bring balance and antidote to them to give some space around what is happening and so that we are not engaging in the habitual patterns of identification, rejection, or attachment. Wanting it to stay, identifying it is me or mine, or pushing it away, thinking that if it isn't here, that everything is going to be better. Right action has to do with the precepts. And again, that itself is a whole practice. So the practice of non-killing can be mm, taken on a much more subtle level to the practice of non-harming. The practice of non-stealing can be taken on a much more subtle level to not taking what is not given. And, you know, when we just look on an energetic level of the way we relate to each other in terms of, you know, the kind of expectations that we have and the kind of demands that we make, you know not taking what is not given is a very powerful practice. you know the whole practice around sexuality, whether one's in celibate or whether one's in relationship is a very powerful practice in looking at what happens with our own energies and how we are in relationship with them in a way which is healthy and skillful and that is a practice which is which is the like the territory independent of of the relationship or the precept level. You know, the fourth precept of to refrain from speaking in a way which is unskillful. You know, in our society, in our culture, it's one of the most difficult things to actually manage. You know, what's true, what's helpful, what's useful, what's timely, what's not divisive, what's not useless. You know, and speak from there. Especially when you're in a situation where that's not what's happening. You know? So how to hold one's own integrity and move through situations where, you know, people have completely different ideas about how to live and what's the right thing to do. And the fifth precept to refrain from drugs and drink and things which cause confusion and carelessness. You know, on one hand it has to do about sobriety, but on another hand it has to do with any kind of addictive mind state. And, you know, it can be addictions to anything. You know, for me, my addictions were more about bliss than they were about substance. You know, and so I would squeeze pleasure out of everything because I couldn't bear the ordinariness of what was just happening. It took ages to be able to reflect on So right action takes us into the whole contemplation of the way that we're using precepts and to use them in a way where it's not only creating an external boundary of what's appropriate in terms of appropriate containers, but an internal reflection on how we're dealing with these as fundamental principles and energies in our lives. And then right livelihood has to do with the principle of, well, how do we actually engage in this in our life? And are, are we being harmless? And are we able to practice goodwill? And are we actually able to live in a way where the fundamental principles that we cherish is what we're living with in our work environment? And if not, can we make changes in the environment that we're in or in our attitudes? Yeah, so I found it very inspiring. You know, when I was speaking to the Thai Rocky group, you know, these are a group of business people and they're entrepreneurs, you know, and they're successful. That's you know one of the criteria for being able to be in this group is that they have to have a fairly high level of successful uh, I don't know whatever you call standing in order to actually be part of this group and yet they all got it you know that if you live with spiritual practice and awareness and kindness and generosity that your life and the quality of your life is different and I thought well yay <laughs> <laughs> yay team. <teen. laughs> <laughs> and they also got it that it didn't matter how successful they were if they didn't have those things like in, in hand then nothing really was okay. You know. So, you know, you can be a bodhisattva business person, you know. There's no reason why not. You can take all the principles of a spiritual practice and take it into whatever lifestyle that you are you are leading. And then there's a whole category around right speech itself. And, you know, in, in the, the monastic discipline, you know, there's codes of conduct and ways of conducting life so that communities are done in a way which is skillful. And the topic that has the most material on it, the most rules, the most commentary, the most everything is right speech. It's huge, you know, in terms of, you know, what happens when we are not speaking skillfully. And, and how to handle feedback, and how to give feedback, and how to, to live in community in a way where we're speaking truthfully, but we're also um, not colluding with unskillful patterns that are present. And when there are people present, there will be unskillful patterns that are present. And it's a, it's a large topic in and of itself. And what, you know, what I found, the sisters, what we found, was is that you know, just the contemplation and the meditation practice was not sufficient to gain skill in how to navigate this territory. We had to, had to study. We had to practice. We needed trainers. We needed workshops. We needed notebooks. We needed, we needed to pick it up as a discipline in itself because none of us knew. We didn't know how to do that at all. And yet, as we learned, you know, then what would happen is, is, that there was much more safety in the community and much more skill, so we could navigate the things that were arising in ways that had more uh, wisdom and compassion in it. Because the early idea was, is just basically shut up and watch your mind, and if you sat long enough on your cushion, everything would sort out. And it like that ain't the truth. <laughs> So in community and partnership and families and work situations, there's times when you get disappointed and frustrated and angry, and it's like there's times when you have to sort it out, but there's a very big difference between dumping and and taking responsibility for one's part in it and negotiating a way of doing something differently that has everybody's best interests at heart. And it takes skill. It's not something that we naturally know how to do, especially in this weird culture, you know, where the kind of, you know, dumping is considered somehow a good thing. You know, not taking responsibility is sort of the norm. You know, it's a high victim-blame-oriented culture. And so we don't have role models and we don't have any kind of... we We don't have much around that gives us alternatives of something which is skillful. Right. Mindfulness is the four foundations of mindfulness, classically. You know, contemplating body, being aware of posture, being aware of breath, being aware of the components of the body, being aware of the movements of the body, contemplating death, being aware of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral as the second foundation, being aware of the objects of mind as the third foundation, and being aware of all the kind of clusters around which we can group things and identify them, you know, such as aggregates or hindrances or the seven factors of enlightenment or the four noble truths, as the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And then right concentration is classically described as entrance into the jhanas, where one is able to allow attention to settle and still so that one is not being hijacked by thoughts and able to allow the joy of not having thoughts and the rapture that comes from that to spread and then for that to still and to settle into a place of equanimity. I don't teach that way. And yet, certainly when the attention does become settled and still, when there is the ability to see things very clearly, the power of that then gives um, uh, more potency to being able to see the the cause and effect relationship of what's happening and to be able to reflect on the identification processes that happen around when weak things arise and there's the identification or absorption or the following of things. And yet the the pathway with insight meditation and the pathway with concentration, you know, they are are similar to a point, and then they diverge. And the divergence is, is that in concentration, attention is absorbing into the object. And in insight practice, there's enough settledness to stay present with what's arising without losing the perspective and the discernment that comes from being able to watch change. And together, these eight different wheels of the spoke support being able to bring clarity and attention to what's arising, so that there's more ease and well-being, both in our kind of mundane life, as well as more uh, liberation, because we're starting to shift our fundamental relationship with what's arising. So being good is good, but it's not free. Being free is wonderful, but if it doesn't manifest in goodness in the life, what's the point? They come together. The world that we live in is not separate from the unconditioned freedom we long for. And the unconditioned freedom that we long for is not separate and distinct from the world that we live in and the way that we manifest. They come together. And so, you know, we chant this chant, the Mangala Sutta, and the Mangala Sutta is a description of all of this. Very simple language, very easy to follow, about how to begin to put into practice the kinds of things that we need so that our life begins to start moving towards that which is in balance, aligned, wholesome, skillful, and free. And then everyone needs to choose, well, you know, is this something I want or not? You know, how much do I want it? What am I willing to do in order to make this happen? What am I willing to give up? So, enough for this evening. You can stop, have a break. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.